welcome to Back from the Abyss. I'm Dr. Craig Heacock. This is a talk I gave at the NOAC Society in Denver last month, and I was planning to record it there and get it live and put it on the podcast, but for a number of reasons, I decided to record it later. And One was because it was so loud. There was a band playing upstairs and pounding through the floors, and the acoustics were bad, and it was so hot. I was pacing the stage with this sure microphone like some crazed stand-up comic doing this talk and I thought this is not ideal to record. So this will contain essentially the same information from that talk, uh, maybe presented in a little calmer fashion. So I know a number of people at the talk were hoping that I would uh, put this on the podcast because there's a lot of information here. The question and answers, I don't know, went on for 45 minutes maybe at the Mercury Cafe in Denver and so many good questions. So Any of you listening, if you have thoughts or questions on this talk, just reach me through my website, craigheacockmd.com. So this is Psychedelics, Psychosis, and Risk Reduction. So my interest in psychedelics and psychosis goes way back. And I would date it back to age 18, 19, during my freshman year of college. I think it was October 1985, 10 of us, we took sandwiches. I think they were peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. We took those from the cafeteria, brought them back to our dorm, and we stuffed dried psilocybin mushrooms in our sandwiches. We turned on Lucy in the Sky with diamonds, and we ate those gross sandwiches. And then we went outside. And what ensued for me was one of the most magical and life-changing experiences I've ever had, which now, as I look where my life has turned out, it it really has shaped so much of the course of my life. And there were 10 of us that day, 10 of us all in really joyous connection with ourselves and, and with nature, but only nine of us graduated. Only nine of us made it through college without a terrible psych psychiatric collapse. One of us didn't even make it through freshman year. And for this story, we'll call him Jack. For almost immediately after that first psilocybin experience, Jack plunged heavily into psychedelics. He would take massive amounts of mushrooms and or acid and always wash down with the most powerful weed he could find and his three-foot graphic bong in hand. And he was relentless. He would be alone at night in his room, staring into a strobe light, again, holding the bong, bag of mushrooms, or hit after acid, hit after hit after hit. And we would go in and check on him. We'd say, Jack, what are you doing? He'd say, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. And we knew he was not fine. He stopped going to class. He got more and more bizarre, started talking to himself a little bit. And by the end of freshman year, he was gone. He was banned from campus. Campus police were told to keep an eye out for him. We heard he was homeless. We knew he was quote-unquote crazy. One of my roommates ran into him, and Jack said he was in contact with satellites and the KGB. And we talked about him all through college. What happened to Jack? And I think our best thought was, our best kind of synthesis was, well, Maybe this is what happened in the 60s. Maybe that's why they banned all these psychedelics that, you know, maybe some people like Jack, they, I mean, this is true. Some people just flipped out from acid or flipped out from mushrooms. 
But I, I wasn't interested in psychiatry per se back then, but I was very interested in the mind and was very interested in neurodevelopment. And I remember thinking a lot, like, did he have some pre-existing illness that was uncovered? You know, I didn't really know what schizophrenia was then, but I remember that diagnosis got thrown around later. We heard that he'd been diagnosed with schizophrenia. I thought, can you get schizophrenia from mushrooms? Can you get them from weed? And so we were always, we were so sad and scared and just confused because there were so many people on our campus taking so many mushrooms and most of them did not lose their mind. Well, fast forward a couple of years, late at night in Boulder, I was wandering down some street trying to find, I think, a friend who had been separated from. And I walk around a corner, boom, I walk right into Jack. And he's wearing this bizarre furry outfit. And he gets right in my face and he says, Craig, Craig, you were wrong. You were wrong about the shrooms. You were wrong about the shrooms and the acid. You said the shrooms were safe. You said they wouldn't hurt me. Look what they did to me. This is what they did to me, Craig. And then he wandered down this alley and I never saw him again. And that was so scary to me and also so interesting and confusing because again, it came back thinking, what happened to Jack? And it turns out as here I am now in my third career as a psychiatrist, it's extremely relevant what did happen to Jack and something I see in my practice every week of every month of every year. So now 20 years into my psychiatric practice, I've seen so many similar psychotic breaks as Jack. And most of them are young men. And that's because young men's brains are about three to five years developmentally behind women. And schizophrenia and schizoaffective disorder are neurodevelopmental illnesses. And so that is somewhat protective for women. And it also has to do with substance use. We'll get to that in a little bit. So many times over the last 20 years, I see these young men in college or just left home. And I think back to Jack and I think, like, this is like Jack. This is like Jack. This is like Jack. Although maybe one thing that's different is I don't see too many people who are using the kind of quantities of LSD or psilocybin that he was. But what I am seeing is a lot of people using a whole lot of THC. First, let's do a definition. What is psychosis? Like so many things in psychiatry, psychosis exists on a spectrum. It's dimensional. It's a color palette. It's not black and white. I like to think of psychosis as a soundboard, like a soundboard at a music show. And on this board are all these dials. And there's a dial for auditory hallucinations, there's a dial for visual hallucinations, there's a dial for tactile hallucinations, there's one for ideas of reference, one for thought broadcasting, one for mind reading, one for delusions of grandeur. And there's a huge dial, like 10 times as big as all the other dials, that's the paranoia dial. Because it turns out that paranoia is sort of the core anchoring symptom of psychosis. And then kind of the far right-hand corner of the psychosis soundboard is the mania board. 
It's a smaller board. It has a few dials. It has a sleep dial, libido dial, uh, a, an energy dial, a risk-taking dial, a few other dials. And it is related to the psychosis board. It's part of it, but it is separate. And at this soundboard of psychosis is the sound engineer who's turning all the dials. And the sound engineer is dopamine. Dopamine is the driver, the controller, the modifier, the medium for psychosis and for mania. That gets very important here as this talk evolves. Another very important definition is substance-induced psychosis versus a primary psychosis. Primary psychosis means an endogenous and inherited uh, uh, pre-existing illness like schizophrenia, schizoaffective disorder. And in my residency, we learned that it was crucial to differentiate between a substance-induced psychosis and a primary psychosis because a substance-induced psychosis had a much better prognosis. In general, when you stop the offending substance, hours, days, weeks, maybe months later, you could pop back to your normal level of thinking and being. But this was back, I was in residency let's see, 2001 to 2005, and things have drastically changed. So I'll get to that in a minute. Let me first explain how you get psychotic from substances. So there's a few mechanisms of substance-induced psychosis, but they all go through the midbrain mesolimbic dopamine. Again, dopamine is the driver of psychosis, of mania, and there's different dopamine circuits in the brain, but what's called the mesolimbic circuit, midbrain circuit, that is the, well, interestingly, that's not just the psychosis circuit, that's also the saliency circuit. That's the circuit that says this is important, pay attention, and that's why it exists. But when this circuit gets overloaded, uh, too much dopamine surging or um, activating that circuit, first we usually start to see paranoia, because again, that's sort of the proto-symptom, uh, if you will, kind of the main anchoring symptom of, of psychosis, and then everything else flowers from that. So substances, when they cause psychosis, one is they can act directly on dopamine. So that would be like methamphetamine, amphetamine, cocaine. That's how they can cause psychosis by acting through that midbrain mesolimbic dopamine. But it also turns out that other receptor systems kind of have a downstream relationship. So the serotonin 2A receptor, which is where LSD, DMT, psilocybin act, if you stimulate that 2A receptor too much, you can get downstream activation of the mesolimbic dopamine and, and psychosis. The cannabinoid 1 receptor, where THC binds, too much stimulation of that receptor can cause psychosis, but again, mediated through dopamine. And also, interestingly, a side note, ketamine, while it can trigger psychotic symptoms, and I'll talk about that a little near the end, Ketamine does not seem to be uh, mediated through that midbrain dopamine circuit. The kind of depersonalization, derealization we see with ketamine is coming more through its NMDA glutamate effect, which is where uh, the PCP molecule also binds. Thank you.
So let me try to bring this all together, tie this up. So what am I seeing in my practice now? Well, let me say it's not anything like what I was seeing 15 or 20 years ago. First of all, what am I not seeing? I am not seeing people get psychotic from psilocybin, even though a lot of my people are using a lot of that. I almost never am seeing people get psychotic from LSD. I have a few cases in recent years of people getting uh, substance abuse psychosis from DMT, but that typically clears within days or a week or two. So I'm not, you know, and I am, of course, seeing methamphetamine-induced psychosis, but the sad reality is those folks burn out so fast with their crystal meth dependence that most of them never even make it to see me or other psychiatrists because that's just such a fast way to flame out your life. But that said, what am I seeing? I am seeing a ton of substance-induced psychosis. If someone had said to me, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago, I would be seeing lots and lots of young people get psychotic from weed, would never believed it. I said, no, not possible. But I am seeing this every week of every month, and it's one of the saddest, scariest things I see. But I think we need to clarify here. I've been using these terms sort of interchangeably, THC or weed or cannabis or marijuana, but really when we talk about substance-induced psychosis, we're not talking about cannabis. We're not talking about the flower unless it's very potent because the other alkaloids in cannabis, CBD, CBN, others, seem to have some at least antipsychotic, if not balancing properties. And so the people who are getting psychotic from THC, it's rarely from people who are smoking flour, or at least if they are, it's very, very potent flour. So for the rest of this talk, I'm going to try to mostly talk about THC because I think that is the key point here is, you know, what I'm seeing in my practice is a lot of substance-induced psychosis, but it's mostly not people using flour unless it's very, very potent flour. A side note here, possible interest, um, yours truly, Dr. H. <laughs> I, I've had substance-induced psychosis twice, and I think one of the episodes is just kind of interesting, but I think the other one is extremely relevant to this talk. Um, once I got substance-induced psychosis from uh, larium mefloquine, which is a malaria medicine, and my wife and I were in Africa back in the 90s. It had just been developed for the Gulf War. We had no idea about the side effects. No one did. We were some of the first people to take it. And it turns out that mefloquine, uh, lyrium, can have terrible neuropsychiatric side effects, including psychosis. And so for probably a good 10 or 12 hours in this terrible little tent in Tanzania, I lost my mind completely. But the other event that I think is relevant to this talk is college. Uh, I was with three other friends and we'd taken a hit of acid and immediately they pulled out a bong. And in general, I don't like THC. I don't like weed. I don't use it much, but they said, Hey, you want a bowl? And so I s smoked a little bit and within four, five, six minutes, I was tripping harder than I ever had in my whole life. And I remember looking at my watch thinking, this is impossible because LSD takes 40, 45 minutes really to start to take effect. And here it was, you know, six and a half, seven minutes. And I was having synesthesia. I was seeing music. I 
And by minute 20, I was entering complete loss of reality. And for the rest of that night, I mean, it was the most horrible night of my life. I thought I was going to be institutionalized. I, it, it it's, makes me actually sick to my stomach to think about it. But I did come back. But I also wondered for months, for years after that, what happened? Why did I, why did I completely go crazy? And then how did I, how did the acid come on so strong? Well, it's interesting that like, all these are converging right now as I, uh, you know, as I prepared for this talk and the reading and, and some of the literature I searches I did. So anyway, in pre preparation for this talk, I did a pretty extensive look at substance-induced psychosis and, and conversion to schizophrenia, the classic psychedelics, and substance-induced psychosis and THC. Anyway, let me just point out one study that I found. So this is from 2019 American Journal of Psychiatry, Kendler et al. Really fascinating but scary study. They found 7,600 people with substance-induced psychosis, and they followed them for a mean of seven years. And what they found was that the highest rate of progression to schizophrenia were those whose psychosis was triggered by cannabis, and they also had a family history of schizophrenia. And this, this completely blows me away. I had to reread this a number of times to believe it. Nearly half of the people in the study with THC-induced psychosis progressed to schizophrenia. And it just, it's like a bell rang when I read that because as, as I said, the first half of my career, so many of my young men coming in with, with different psychotic presentations, most of them were smoking weed, but most of the time, they, if they would leave that alone, uh, their psychosis would clear, but lately, no. It, and that's, that's probably about what I'm seeing. About half of young people who come to me now with psychosis that's at least accompanied or, or possibly triggered by THC, they, they're converting to schizophrenia. So it turns out that THC is actually a very powerful psychedelic. And I've talked about that on the podcast before. And Saj Razvi has talked about that in his episodes. But pure THC is profoundly psychedelic. And it also has a kind of non-specific augmenting effect on the classic psychedelics. And so a lot of people you know, coming down from psilocybin or LSD will use THC to augment that. Um, and so that's been widely known, but it also turns out that THC has close linkage to schizophrenia through at least a couple genes. So these two genes are the AKT1 gene and the COMT gene, AKT1, COMT, but rather than worry, try to remember those, uh, I'll put those in the show notes, but what's most interesting about those genes, those are both genes involved in dopamine metabolism and the dopamine synapse. So it turns out that if you have what's called the CC variant of the AKT1 gene, daily marijuana use, and again, this, in this study, they didn't look at you know, using pure THC, just marijuana use. Daily marijuana use 
uh, increase your risk of substance-induced psychosis by 700%, by seven times. If you have the Val-Val variant of the COMT gene, which is about 20% of the population, this leads to two to three times the risk of developing schizophrenia if you're a regular user of weed um, as an adolescent. And so the conclusion of this Kendler study, of this huge study, 7,600 people followed for an average of seven years, they said that the strongest predictor of THC-induced psychosis was unopposed and are high levels of THC plus genetic susceptibility at AKT1 or COMT plus male gender and younger than 25. And then, very importantly, the strongest predictor of progression from substance-induced psychosis to schizophrenia was THC plus a family history of primary psychosis like schizophrenia, adolescent weed use, male gender. And again, as I read that, I thought this is exactly what I'd been seeing. You know, we have to be careful what we you know, see in our practices because you know, we have observer bias and expectation bias. And so part of me has been wondering, like, am I just expecting that I'm seeing more and more people get psychotic with, with weed and then convert to schizophrenia or schizoaffective disorder? But now I'm seeing in the literature, no, this is clearly a major risk. Uh, and let's delve further. So just a little bit about twins. Some of the listeners know that I have twins. I have identical twin girls who are 21. So I'm pretty fascinated with identical twins. So the monozygotic twin concordance of schizophrenia is 40 to 50%. So what that means, if you take identical twins separated at birth, if one develops schizophrenia, there's about a 40 to 50% chance that the other one will. So that suggests that schizophrenia has a significant genetic component, but 50 to 60% is not genetic. And we've long known that that 50 to 60% involves things like in utero infections or traumatic childbirth, early childhood abuse or, or neglect. All of those can, can be environmental factors that cause schizophrenia to be expressed. But the Kendler study and other studies that I found in researching this talk, they're suggesting, estimating that one in 10 cases of schizophrenia right now in the United States were triggered by THC use during adolescence. So depending on how you define schizophrenia in the United States, there's maybe 1.8, 1.9 million people with schizophrenia. So we're talking 180 to 190,000 people whose genetic predisposition towards schizophrenia was uncovered because of their adolescent marijuana use. That blew my mind. And I'd be really interested to know how that might vary now state to state, you know, because in, in Colorado, in the dispensaries, it's very common that the, you know, the weakest strains of, of flour that you would buy might be 18, 20, 20%, 22% by weight THC. And, you know, the weed of the 80s was like 4, 5, 6%. Again, coming back to some of the conclusions from my, from my literature search, 
So the longitudinal studies strongly suggest that the classic psychedelics, psilocybin, LSD, DMT, they don't cause chronic psychoses, typically. But when combined with THC, then they can uncover a genetic vulnerability to psychosis and schizophrenia. But they don't create it de novo. And now, coming back to Jack from my freshman year, I think this is, I mean, we'll never know why Jack got sick. But I think this is what happened to Jack. I think Jack had a genetic predisposition towards schizophrenia. And he used so much weed, so much THC, again, the strongest THC he could find that, and used so much acid and mushrooms that I think the THC potentiated those. And then, as I said, you know, if you overactivate the serotonin 2A receptor, which LSD and psilocybin do, and you overactivate the cannabinoid 1 receptor, which THC does, you can get downstream effects such that you can overwhelm the dopamine system in the midbrain and cause psychosis. So as we think about risk reduction and psychedelics, I think that's particularly relevant in, in Colorado for sure. I mean, psilocybin is on the ballot this fall for potential legalization, so we might be very close to seeing this widely openly used here in Colorado. Anyways, we think about risk reduction. We need to acknowledge that THC, and particularly unopposed THC, and by that I mean pure THC, uh, the distillates, the concentrates. The THC is very risky for those with a genetic vulnerability to schizophrenia, schizoaffective disorder, or bipolar 1. And it seems to be mediated through these two genes, COMT and or AKT1. So if we add THC to the more potent tryptamine psychedelics, particularly DMT or LSD, we seem to be greatly increasing the risk of substance-induced psychosis in these genetically vulnerable people. And ironically, for people with some of the big three mental illnesses, which I would call bipolar one, schizophrenia, and schizoaffective disorder, for a lot of people with these illnesses, THC is probably actually riskier than alcohol. And when I said that during the NOAC talk, there was a dude in the back with a 420 shirt. He said, you're crazy. You're fucked in the head. How can you say that beer is better than THC, dude? You, I'm in the industry. Yeah. So I had a heckler. <laughs> so that's the first time at a talk I've ever had a heckler. And again, since I said it, I was sweaty and had this microphone. I was, I was pacing the stage. I thought, wow, this feels all grown up and fun. Um, in any case, uh, back to decompensation. Let me just read some prevalences. So bipolar one in the U.S., 2.8% prevalence. Schizophrenia, 0.25 to 0.64. Schizoaffective disorder, 0.3%. But if we combine those, and again, I would call these the big three of psychiatry, the big three serious illnesses, bipolar one, schizophrenia, schizoaffective disorder, that's about 3.5% of the total population who is at risk of psychiatrically decompensating with THC, whether it's a first episode or later episode of psychosis or mania. I mean, decompensation is kind of a fancy word, but let me put that into graphic description, what I mean by that, because psychiatric decompensation with one of these illnesses is horrific. So just in my practice, I've had people 
decompensate who are stable on meds with one of these illnesses, they decompensated typically after dabbing THC or using you know, the high potency flower. They have brandished weapons in public places, attempted to cut off body parts, wandered naked in traffic and into the mountains, been hospitalized. There've been suicide attempts, uh, murder threats. And again, these are just destabilization in my practice. These are people who are doing well on meds, stable and then typically using pure THC products and they decompensated. So when I work with my patients with bipolar one, schizoaffective disorder, schizophrenia, I always write like, hey, here's some things to avoid. And I'm always saying, okay, here are the two most risky drugs for you, meth. And everybody says, oh, I'm not gonna do meth. I say, that's good. And weed. And that is often met with great displeasure and disbelief. And I tell people, no, literally, like if you decompensate and you end up in the hospital or jail or worse, or if you're dead and it's substance involved, it's going to be meth or it's going to be THC. And, and that leads me into kind of a final conclusion or suggestion. I, if I could be the health czar of Colorado, nobody's asked me to do that, but if I could be the health czar of Colorado, I would get rid of medical marijuana. I would get rid of medical cannabis and I would make it all legal. People should have cognitive liberty. People should be able to do what they want with substances. But I really believe as a psychiatrist, who's someone who's devoted his career and much of his life to working with mental illness and addiction, I think when we say that weed is medicine, and it is for some people, undoubtedly, like there are um, cannabis uh, products and medical diagnoses for which cannabis is very helpful. But in psychiatry and mental health, for the biggest, scariest, most deadly, most life-wrecking illnesses that we treat, THC is a disaster. And particularly what's available now in the dispensaries is putting our patients at great risk. So again, um, I'm a cognitive libertarian, but I would eliminate medical weed. I wonder what you think about that, listeners. Hey, thanks for listening. It's been fun. And uh, we'll have another episode out in a couple weeks. Love to hear from you if you have any thoughts or questions on this episode. See you soon.